You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. The Book of the Acts of the Apostles, Chapter 1. Humanly speaking, Christianity should have never been. From a human perspective, the Church of Christ, or Christianity, was doomed to failure from the very beginning. Before it ever got off the ground, before it ever started, humanly speaking, it should have failed. It should have been snuffed out early on. Think of all the things that were strikes against Christianity ever becoming a successful movement, so to speak. And and I speak in terms, humanly speaking, from a human perspective. First, it started with the Jews. Now, if you were going to start a worldwide movement, you would not have chosen to use the Jews, most likely. Not chosen the Jewish nation. They weren't a power to be reckoned with. They had no military might. They were under servitude to Rome. And all they occupied was this little sliver of land alongside the Mediterranean. If you wanted to start a successful movement, you would have started it in Rome with Romans, with Greeks, with Gentiles, never with Jews. And then there is the problem of the number of people that Christianity started out with. Really just 11 men. Uh, There was the 12 apostles minus Judas, who was dead by the time the book of Acts begins. Uh, 12 apostles minus Judas, that's 11 men. And Luke records that there were some other believers. Chapter 1, verse 15, he records a meeting in which there were 120 people who were gathered there. 120 people is hardly an earth-shattering force, is it? 120 people? Jews? Then there's the problem with the message. The Savior had died publicly in front of everybody. He had been humiliated. He had suffered. He had been crucified. He was dead. He had been buried. Now you and I know that He rose from the grave, but keep in mind that He did not appear to everybody. He didn't appear to the Sanhedrin. He didn't appear in Rome to the Caesar. He didn't appear to the religious leaders. He appeared to His disciples. He appeared to those who were believers in Him, really, and who had followed Him and who had learned from Him. He appeared to over 500 at one time, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You have the appearances of the Lord, but really when it boils down to it, it's all of these unbelievers and their word and all of these people who had publicly seen Him put to shame and and killed and buried. You have their word against the word of a few fishermen and a couple zealots and a tax collector who say that they saw Him alive. And the message that they have to proclaim is the death and the suffering of their founder and the resurrection. And then there's the problem of the disciples themselves. Hardly a a group of men that you would entrust such an important message to. A ragamuffin bunch if there ever was one. A bunch of men who had already failed very publicly and very miserably. They had denied the Lord. They had fled. They had left Him. They were doubting. They were unbelieving. They were not intellectual giants. They were fishermen, tax collectors. Uh, One of them was a zealot. One of the twelve was a devil and had actually betrayed Jesus. And then they had scattered and they're fearful for their lives. And they have already failed. So they've got this failure complex about them. And they're not the quickest of men. They're like you and I. 
And Jesus would tell them something and they just wouldn't get it. So he'd give them a parable, a story to illustrate it. And then they'd say, we need you to explain the parable. And he would explain the parable to them. You got it? Oh, yeah. Then they'd turn around and do something that showed that they did not get it at all. So if they're not senators, they're not governors, they're not movers and shakers, they're not men of power and wealth and influence. Eleven men, 120 people, Jews, little sliver of land next to the Mediterranean Sea, preaching a message that is not really that popular, the death of their founder and his resurrection, and their failures and fearful, intimidated, and not too quick really to learn the lessons. Hardly the makings for a worldwide movement, wouldn't you say? Would you entrust a message like that? Would you, would you look at that situation and say, I predict that one day this Gospel and these people will have an influence all over the known world. Would you bet on that? I wouldn't have. But Jesus said, I will build My church. And the book of Acts is the unfolding of that promise. I will build My church. So you have all those things going against it. The nation in which they live, the number of people, the death of the Savior, and the disciples themselves. You have all of that that's really stacked against them. And then you're going to add something else into the mix. And that is that Jesus is leaving. He's leaving them. So in the book of Acts, we have this transition period where the earthly ministry of our Lord is over. He has worked. He has served. He has fulfilled the Father's will. He has offered a sacrifice on the cross. He has risen from the dead. And 40 days later, He ascends. And that's what the Gospel of Luke brings us to. And now Luke in the book of Acts brings us to this transition period where Jesus has committed this task of evangelism to the disciples. And He has told them, you are to go into all the world and make disciples out of every nation and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. That's quite a commission. And He has committed it to these group of men and then He's going to leave. And so what we see in the book of Acts at the very beginning is this transition period where the Lord now has given them a commission. He has committed something to their charge and now He is about to leave. But the Lord does not just give them a task to do and then go to heaven and sit down and see if they're able to do it. He doesn't do that. Instead, the Lord spends that time between His resurrection and His ascension preparing these men to do what He wants them to do. And it is with that preparation process and the unique elements of it that Luke opens the Gospel of the book of Acts. Last week we sort of introduced the book by finding out who wrote it and why it was written, and what is in the book, and how we are to understand the book. Today we are going to read Luke's introduction to his book. So I want you to pick up your Bibles, and in Acts chapter 1, we're going to read the first three verses. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when He was taken up to heaven, after He had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom He had chosen. To these He also presented Himself alive after His suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the Kingdom of God. Now in those three verses which form basically the introduction to the book of Acts, 
Luke highlights for us and stresses for us four very unique things. And these are four things that Luke is really going to, to develop through the whole book. So it's important for us to understand these four things and what he's laying out for us because they're going to come up again and again and again and again in the book. And he introduces them to us here. And we're going to look at those four things. The first one is this, that Christ is a unique Messiah. Luke says, the first account that I composed, Theophilus, and you remember from last week, Theophilus was a a proper name. It's the name of an individual in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. He is called the most excellent Theophilus, indicating that he is likely a Roman official of some sort. Some have speculated that this was Paul's lawyer who was to represent him before the Caesar. So this first account, which is written to Theophilus, is the Gospel of Luke. The book of Acts is the continuation of what Luke had chronicled in his Gospel. And so the book of Acts picks up where Luke drops off. And Luke says this first account, which is his Gospel, I composed Theophilus about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now there's something in those phrases that indicates a uniqueness on behalf of Christ. Now he's unique in every way. He had a unique birth. He was born of a virgin. His birth was announced by angels. Um, His early childhood was marked by direction from angelic beings and visions when Joseph was told to go to Egypt and then he was told to come out of Egypt and go back to Galilee. His birth was unique. His life was completely unique. He claimed to be God in human flesh. He performed the miraculous. He healed the blind, uh, gave sight to the blind and healed the deaf and made the lame walk. He raised the dead. He did all of those as an authentication of what his message was and who he was in the flesh. He was unique in that way. He had a unique death which was in fulfillment of all of the Old Testament prophets and all of the Old Testament Scriptures. He rose from the grave in a unique fashion. And He had a unique body which was not like the one that was crucified but was a glorified body. And then He had a, uh, he was unique in all that He did after His resurrection and even in the ascension. But there's something that Luke gives us here that indicates He was unique in another way. And it is this. Luke says that in his Gospel, he chronicled all that Jesus, what? Began to do and to teach. And listen, there is a difference between Jesus Christ and Muhammad, Buddha, and every other religious figure who has ever lived. You know what the difference is? When all those other men died, they ceased doing anything. Not so with Christ. When all of those other men perished, they perished. Now others picked up and carried on where they left off. Muhammad has followers today who carry on his teachings and carry on his, his work, so to speak. But it cannot be said in any sense that Muhammad began to do and to teach something and he continues to do that through his people today. can't be said. But Christ is different. He is unique in this way. What He did on earth was only the beginning. You see, the Gospel or the book of Acts has a very abrupt ending. It ends with Luke or with Luke telling us that Paul is in prison teaching and preaching from a house arrest situation. And then it just ends and you feel like there should be another chapter. But really, the book of Acts has no ending. It has no appropriate ending. You know why that is? Because Christ's work never ends. He began to do and to teach something. And now the implication in the Gospel 
uh, uh, the book of Acts is that now Jesus is continuing to do and to teach things. He continued it through the apostles. And listen, folks, He continues it today through you and I. He continues to work in His church through His people, ministering, teaching, and, and, and fulfilling the Great Commission. It's not that Jesus has left us to do this task. And so we are going to do it to the best of our ability. Rather, He began to do something. He started it. Now there is a sense in which our Lord's work is complete. Is there not? There is a sense in which He said it's finished. He hung on the cross and He said it's finished. And before He died, He said, I have finished all the work that the Father has given Me to do. The atonement has been made. The sacrifice has been made. The price for sin has been paid. Redemption has been accomplished. And He has risen from the dead. His work in that sense is finished. But His work in another sense has only just begun at that time. Because He began to do these things on earth. And He continues to do them through you and I in the church. You see, we have a unique Messiah. We have a unique Savior. Unique in His birth, unique in His death, unique in His resurrection, unique in His continuing work through the church. And He's unique in His ascension. That's why Luke, look at it, chapter 1, he says that Jesus began to do and teach these things until the day when He was taken up to heaven. That's a reference to His ascension. Until that day on the Mount of Olives with the disciples present and many other, Jesus was lifted up into the clouds and He left His disciples. There's something that happened until the day that He was taking up. You see, our Lord is not only risen, but He has ascended. And now He is seated at the right hand of the Father. And He has given a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth. He is unique in that He has now not only risen, but ascended. Paul said that God has raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. And He has given to Him all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is, every name that is named not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And that God has put all things under His feet and put all things in subjection to Him who is the head of the church, His body, and a fullness of Him who fills all in all. That's our Savior. That's unique. And listen, that's the message that the apostles preached over and over and over again. This is the Messiah, and He is unlike anyone else. That is why there is no other name under heaven whereby men must be saved. There is no other Savior. He does not sit on a, a level with a group of peers and religious teachers. He has no peers. He's God in human flesh who died for the sins of His people, rose again the third day, and now is ascended and seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. He's a unique Messiah. Not only does Luke stress the fact that Christ is a unique Messiah, but also Luke stresses for us the fact that Christ gave a unique message. He gave a unique message. Look at that at the beginning of verse 2. Luke says, until the day when He was taken up into heaven after He had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom He had chosen. There's a little bit of post-resurrection education that's going on in Acts chapter 1 in these verses. There's a period of 40 days between the resurrection of our Lord and His ascension to the right hand of the Father where He is giving some instruction to His disciples. There's a period of 40 days there where He is appearing to them and He is teaching them and he is, he is equipping them for the task that He is about to leave them with. And it's during that time that He's giving them all of this instruction. Now, we know that there was a tremendous need for some instruction because 
the disciples would have all kinds of questions. And I want you to notice that Luke doesn't, there's a lot of questions that Luke raises here that he doesn't answer. For one, how many times did Jesus appear to his disciples? How many times did Jesus appear to his disciples? They're counting it together. There's women at the well. There's another woman separately. There's twice to the disciples. Um, once to Peter. You count Paul in there. And then you've got the appearing to the 500. Um, road to Emmaus. Those disciples. Um, you start counting up some of the other ones and you arrive at, depending on who you're, who you're reading, you arrive somewhere between 10 and 17, depending on how they take these appearances and what happens there. But there's no catalog given to us in Scripture. And there's nothing that indicates that we have any reason to believe that it's, his appearances to his disciples are only limited to what we see in Scripture. During this 40-day period, he is appearing to his disciples. We don't know how often they met. We don't know for how long they met. We do not know what they did in all of these appearances. We just have these brief glimpses at their encounters with the risen Lord. But we do know something. They were getting some instruction. And they would have needed that instruction. Why would they need that instruction? Because there was so much they didn't understand. How do you understand the Old Testament in light and the promise of the kingdom? How do you understand that in light of the death and the burial and the resurrection of the king? How do you interpret those passages in the Old Testament? But what is all this talk about him going? How long is this going to last? How long is he going to be gone? When is he going to come back? Why is he going to come back? What is he going to do when he comes back? All these questions would have been going through their minds. If I was a, listen, to say that those events in the final week of the life of the Lord Jesus and his resurrection, to say that those events had rocked their world would be an understatement. It had more than rocked their world. They had all these preconceived notions of what the Messiah was going to be and what the Messiah was going to do. And now He had come. He had done so much of that. Left so much unfinished. And now He says He's going. And all these questions would be flooding to their minds. And there would be a need for this education. Luke tells us that He spoke of the things concerning Himself and the things concerning the kingdom. Now they would have needed to understand all of that. And even though Jesus spent 40 days going through this with them, If you look down at chapter 1, verse 6 of the book of Acts, what do the disciples ask Him? Lord, is it at this time that You're going to establish the kingdom for Israel? Now look at the end of verse 3. He spent 40 days speaking to them concerning the things of the kingdom. Right over their head. Now He's leaving, and what do they ask Him? Lord, is it at this time that you're going to establish the kingdom? Come on! That's a Peter question. A Peter's not known for his brilliant conversation starters or his good lead-in questions. Peter's known for sticking his foot in his mouth and, and speaking before he really thinks. And i got to read that, and Luke doesn't tell us that Peter said that, but in my mind I'm thinking, that sounds like Peter. That sounds like something Peter would say. You've been learning this for 40 days and you still don't get it? We're not setting up the kingdom now. He'd been telling them this for 40 days. And now he's leaving. Lord, now? (laughs) No, not now. They needed that education. There was so much they didn't understand. So much that he would have to go through with them. Now Luke does give us a glimpse at what it is that he taught his disciples. So we're not left completely in the dark. And we read them in our Scripture reading. Luke chapter 24, the road to Emmaus. Their eyes are kept from recognizing Him. And He comes alongside of them. They don't notice that it's Him. They don't recognize it because Luke says their eyes were blinded. 
Jesus kept them from recognizing who it was in order that He could take some time to teach them before He revealed to Him who He was. And so as they're walking along, they go through all the events of the last week and say, with so much that we don't understand, we're perplexed by this and saddened by it. And then Jesus said, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer and then to enter into His glory? And then Luke says, beginning with Moses, the book of Genesis, and continuing through all the prophets and the Scriptures, and all the Scriptures, He explained the things concerning Himself. That is post-resurrection education. That's what they were getting. And all the way to Emmaus, they did this, and later on their hearts burned within them. They get to where their lodging is at, and the day is about ready to come to a close. They convince Jesus to stay with them. Of course, He's the risen Lord. He knows He's not going to stay there long. He agrees to it. They go in. They break bread. They recognize Him. And He vanishes. And then they say to themselves, end of the day or no end of the day, we've got to get back and tell the other eleven. So they go back to Jerusalem. They come into Jerusalem. The disciples say, look, He's risen. And the, the men who are on the road to Emmaus say, we know, we saw, here's what happened to us. And Luke says that while they were explaining these things to the eleven, Jesus appeared in their midst. And they think He's a spirit. He says, no, no, no. Spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see me have. Look at the nails, prints in my hands and my feet, hole in my side. This is me. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Still a little slow to believe. Still a little slow to accept it. So he takes a piece of broiled fish and he eats it in front of them as a demonstration that he is who he claimed to be and he has risen like he claimed he would. And then what does Luke say? Jesus said, these are the words that I spoke to you. That everything in the law concerning me must be fulfilled. And then he begins in Moses and continues with the prophets and goes through the Psalms and explains to them all the things in the Scriptures concerning himself. That's post-resurrection education. That's what the disciples were getting. And Luke gives us a glimpse of that and of what it was that they were being educated in. And Luke says at the end of chapter 2 that between his res- sorry, at the end of verse 2, between his resurrection and his ascension, that the Lord was appearing to them over the course of those 40 days and he was speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Now, this is sort of the unique message that the disciples were given. He was educating them about the things concerning the kingdom of God. Now, does Christ rule today here on earth? A little bit of a trick question. Does Christ rule today here on earth? Let me qualify it. Physically? Nope. Spiritually? Absolutely. In what sense, in what sense is the kingdom of God active here, alive among us today? And in what sense is the gospel message a proclamation of the kingdom? Because Luke says that Jesus spent those 40 days explaining the things pertaining to Himself and concerning the kingdom. The kingdom of God is the rule of God. Now, God is sovereign over all things. Psalm 103, verse 19, The Lord has established His throne in the heavens and His sovereignty rules over all. God is sovereign over all people, all places, all things at all times. There is no glitch in His sovereignty. He runs all things. Everything is under His control. Everything is unfolding as, as planned. He rules in every sphere. He rules in the world. He rules among the church. 
He rules among the nations. He is sovereign. So the kingdom of God is all of God's rule, and He is the king of the universe. So all of the universe operates in His sphere. Now God rules in the church in one way, and He rules in the world another way. But He rules nonetheless. You see, God is sovereign over the nations. Nebuchadnezzar recognized that. It's God who rules in the nations. He raises up kings, and He puts down kings for His own purpose. And He is sovereign over all of that. There's no accident in anybody getting any position of power or authority in any country on earth. Because God rules in that. But He rules in the world differently than He operates in the church in His sovereignty. But it's all in His sphere, His kingdom. Now here's the way of looking at it. God's kingdom extends to everything. There's no such thing as a God-free zone. God's sovereignty and His kingdom extend to everything. But on earth, there is a rebellion against the king. And it's led by Satan and his angels and willfully participated in by the mass of humanity. But there will come a day when the king will return and he will put out that rebellion and he will rule with righteousness, justice, and truth. And on that day, there will be a literal, physical kingdom when Christ will rule with a rod of iron. And He will put down His enemies and He will be the final, ultimate victor over all things. And that will be the physical manifestation of that rule that operates spiritually right now, even though we're in the midst of a rebellion. So when Luke says, and when the apostles talked about the kingdom, what they mean is basically this. Their message was this. There is one King. And He's coming again. And God has appointed a day on which He will judge all the nations through that man whom He has risen from the dead. And He's given proof by raising Him from the dead. And so you must obey the King. You must come to the King for remission of sins and forgiveness and cleansing. And it's only by coming to that King for the forgiveness of sins that you can be part of the spiritual kingdom which is the church. you get that? The message of the Gospel is the message of the kingdom. That God rules in the hearts of His people. And that He will someday rule physically and we will rule with Him. That's all part of the Gospel message. And the church is in the kingdom and the kingdom is manifested in the church. So Jesus spent these 40 days proclaiming to them the things concerning Himself and the kingdom. That was the unique message. Now what I want you to notice is the unique messengers that Christ chose. It's the apostles. Because look what Luke says in verse 2. Until the day when He was taken up to heaven after He had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom He had chosen. Now, the word apostles is a word that just basically means a sent one, an emissary, somebody who is sent out with orders. And it's used two ways in the New Testament. The first way that it is used, it's used very rarely this way, but it is used this way. It's used of just anybody who is a sent one, much like we might use the term missionary today. You send them out with a commission and orders. It's used that way of Timothy, even in the book of Acts. But predominantly in the New Testament, when the New Testament speaks of the apostles, it means the twelve. It means the twelve. Not Judas, but the eleven with Paul. That's how it's used. Paul was an apostle. Peter was an apostle. James, John, Matthew, Jude. All of them were apostles. Those eleven disciples. They're called apostles in the book of Acts. Disciples in the Gospels. It's the same people. So when Luke refers to the apostles whom he chose... He is referring to those 11 in this instance because Paul wasn't converted yet and Paul wasn't there. He's referring to those 11 who are left after Judas hung himself. And that is the apostolate whom Christ chose. 
Now there's something interesting about the apostles in the New Testament, and this is what you have to remember, and this is significant. I'm going to show you why in a couple weeks, but I want to introduce it to you here. The apostles were chosen and commissioned by Christ Himself. That's why Luke indicates their uniqueness by saying that He appeared and He taught the apostles whom He had chosen. He's introducing us to a theme that He's going to develop through the whole book of Acts. And the theme is this. There were twelve unique men. Nobody else has ever been like them. Chosen by Christ. Commissioned by Christ. Eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Christ. They were ones who sat and learned from the resurrected Christ. All of the twelve could claim that. And at this stage, that's the eleven. The apostles had a position of authority in the early church that was universally recognized among Christians. You never contradicted an apostle. You never questioned an apostle. You never doubted an apostle's authority or the truth or his writings. Never once. The only ones who ever did that in the New Testament were false teachers, false prophets. Men who claimed themselves to be apostles of Christ, but were false apostles and messengers of Satan. And listen, false teachers and false prophets today question the authority of the apostles. Why is it that you and I read the book of 1 Peter and we take a year to go through it and to learn from it and apply it to our lives? Why is that? Because it was written by an apostle and what he says is authoritative and it's the Word of God. And that's how the early church recognized these men. When after the apostles had died, the early church and between the year 100 and the year 300, as they began to draw together the books of the New Testament, they were asking themselves, how do we know which ones are, the, are written? How do we know which ones are God's Word? One of the tests they applied to the books that they had to choose from was this. Was it written by an apostle? Or someone close to an apostle? Well, that takes care of basically Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, the Timothy books, the Thessalonian books, Hebrews, Philemon, Peter's books, Jude's book, John's books, Matthew and John and Revelation. But that still leaves the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Luke, the book of Acts, and the book of Hebrews. Now, nobody really knows who wrote Hebrews, but the early church believed it was written by an apostle. That leaves Mark and the two books by Luke. Now, do you remember at the end of 1 Peter, who was Mark? Who was he with? Peter. Who was Luke with? Paul. See, the early church understood the commission that these men had been given. They were unique men. They had a position of authority. When they spoke, it was truth. When they said something, it was to be obeyed. When they wrote something down, it was Scripture. These men acted in a position and in a capacity that is absolutely unique. They were the unique messengers of Christ. Paul says that the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. In other words, the church is built upon the apostles' doctrine. That's why after the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, it says that the early church continued in the apostles' doctrine. They learned from these men, these men taught, and what they taught was considered inspired and true by God. Now last week I told you that in the book of Acts you have all of these phenomena that happen. Healings, miracles, the gift of tongues, prophecy, all of these different things that come into play as we go through the book. What you are going to see, and even in relation to the raising of the dead and exorcisms, what you are going to see as we go through the book of Acts is this. Those phenomena revolved around the apostles and their ministry. 
It revolved around the apostles and their ministry. You say, there are people alive today who say, well, we want to duplicate what the early church was doing. Casting out demons, raising the dead, healing, slaying in the Spirit, speaking in tongues, words of knowledge, personal revelation, prophecies. Listen, that's not what the early church en masse experienced. Those type of phenomena revolved around the apostles. They were unique men. And Luke, as we go through the book of Acts, you're going to see it. Time and again, Luke says, when mentioning a phenomena, signs and wonders were done by the hands of the apostles. They claimed and Christ commissioned them to be His messengers and to speak truth and to write Scripture. And so their message was authenticated by signs and wonders. Christ gave them the ability to perform the miraculous just like He had done as an authentication of His message and ministry. He did the same thing with the apostles. They were unique men. Not only does Luke indicate the unique men and the message and the messenger, but also the fourth thing Luke gives to us, he shows us that Christ presented unique manifestations. Unique manifestations. Verse 3 says that over the course of those 40 days, He appeared to them, He appeared to them and presented Himself alive after His suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing for a period of 40 days, speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Now at this point in time when Luke is talking about this and what he's indicating here at, at that time, skeptics not only had to deal with the fact that there was an empty tomb, but they also had to deal with people who were eyewitnesses of His majesty. The skeptics could say, well, the disciples stole the body, or the Roman authorities stole the body, or the body was thrown into a pit, nobody knows where the body was. And all of these ways of trying to explain the fact that the tomb was empty on Easter morning, on Resurrection Sunday morning. But they not only had to explain the empty tomb, they had to explain this growing number of people who claimed to have seen Christ alive. And many of them had been skeptics. Remember Thomas? The disciples said, Thomas, we've seen the Lord. And he wasn't with them. He said, no, not until I see the nails, scars in his hands and his feet and put my hand into his side where the spear went in, I will not believe. And the Lord appeared to the disciples the second time. Thomas was present. And he said to Thomas, look at my hands, look at my feet, put your fingers into my side and see that it is me. And Thomas didn't do any of that. He fell down and worshipped and said, my Lord and my God. And he worshipped Christ. The other disciples weren't all that quick to believe. They thought they saw a ghost. They thought it was a hallucination. He appeared to them, showed them himself. And they still were reluctant to believe. So he had to eat fish with them to prove that it was him. That's what Luke means when he says that he appeared to them with many convincing proofs. What kind of convincing proofs did he give to the disciples? He ate fish with them. He appeared on the seashore. He cooked fish with them. He showed them His hands. He showed them His feet. He showed them the hole in His side. He appeared physically in a body. He talked with them. He taught them. They grabbed a hold of Him. And I don't know what else they did, but that's what Scripture reveals that they did. Many convincing proofs. And all of that was geared for one purpose. To bring those disciples to the point of saying, we have seen the Lord. Now what do these unique manifestations do for you and I? Let me give you a couple things. First of all, you'll notice from Acts chapter 1 that the disciples were convinced. They were convinced. After this 40 days, there were no more skeptics among them. 
None of them. Thomas was just as convinced as Peter was. These men were convinced that they had seen and handled and touched and talked with the risen Christ. There was an empty tomb, there was no body, and they had seen Him alive and were convinced. And when the authorities put the heat on Him and said to them, throughout the book of Acts, you have to stop preaching in this man's name. They essentially would say, you can shut us up in prison and you can kill us. But we're not going to deny that He's risen because we have seen Him and we have handled Him. They were convinced. Listen, people might die for what they think to be true, even though it might be a lie. A lie. They might die for what they think to be true, even though it's a lie. But they believe it in their heart strongly enough that they'll die for it. A suicide bomber, for instance. Dying for a lie. They believe it to be true. But they'll die for it. But no man will die for what he knows to be a lie. No man will die for what he knows to be a lie. These 11 disciples, you could take the 12, counting Paul, minus one, John, who died of old age, 11 of them gave their lives for the resurrected Christ. They would rather die, be crucified, be burned, beheaded, be thrust through with a spear or be stoned than deny what they knew to be true. And that is that they had seen the risen Christ. They were convinced. Second thing I want you to understand is that the church of Jesus Christ rests upon the resurrection. Without a resurrection, there is no church. Without a resurrection, there is no hope. Without a resurrection, there is no faith for the saints. Without a resurrection, there is nothing. The church rests upon the resurrected Christ. And when these early disciples began to preach, what is it that they preached? Every time they opened their mouths, they preached Christ, Him crucified, and Him risen. They didn't give a message that they didn't mention the resurrection. That was their gospel message. Not Jesus died for you and wants to give you a happy, pleasant, enjoyable life. Just come to Him. That wasn't their gospel presentation. Their gospel presentation was this. God has appointed a man on which He will judge, appointed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness through Jesus Christ whom He's risen from the dead. Repent and trust in Him. And the resurrection came out of their mouth every time they spoke. Listen, the resurrection is so predominant through the book of Acts that I didn't even have to work at it to make sure that we were going to stay in the book of Acts on Easter Sunday this year. Resurrection Sunday, we're going to be looking at a text in the book of Acts. Because the resurrection is on almost every page of the book of Acts. That was their message. That was the message of the church. He is risen. That's what they proclaimed. He is risen. He is risen. And every time they opened their mouths, that's what they said. He's risen. Do what you want. Say what you want. But I've seen Him. And I know. They were convinced. The church rests on the resurrection of Christ. And the third thing is, I want you to understand this. The Christian faith is rooted in fact. It's grounded on fact. The Christian faith is not a, a blind leap into a dark chasm. It doesn't require that you turn off your intellect. It doesn't require that you disengage the mind and believe some esoteric, mystical, existential idea that has no basis in reality. It's none of that. It is a faith that is firmly rooted in a historical incident, a fact of history, which can be verified by eyewitnesses, and that is that Jesus Christ rose from the grave. That is why He is the only way and the only Savior. And that is why there is no other name given under heaven whereby men must be saved. Because there's only one who rose. And between His resurrection 
In his ascension, Christ was teaching his disciples these things, preparing them for the task that he was going to give us. That's what he was doing to prepare the apostles. And that's what Luke presents to us, all of these unique things about the church. And those are the unique things that are continuing through the book of Acts. Now I have to ask you, what have you done with the resurrected Christ? What have you done with the resurrected Christ? Do you believe in Him? Have you trusted Him for salvation? Do you understand that there's no other way to heaven? You can't trust in your own righteousness. You can't trust in your own good deeds and your own works. You can't trust on faithful church attendance and giving. You can't trust in your baptism. You can't trust in anything. The only thing you can trust in is Christ. That's the only way of salvation. And He's the only Savior that's presented to us. He is the unique Messiah. And I ask you today, and I would never assume that every person in a church is saved, but I'm going to ask you today, what have you done with Christ? Have you come to Him as the risen King who rules and will one day come back? Because He will judge all the nations. Every man. And God has furnished proof that He's going to judge all men by raising Him from the dead. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You once again for the truth of the resurrection. Thank You that He has risen. What a message of hope. What a message of truth. And what a message You've given to us. That we can face anything in our lives knowing that Christ has risen from the dead. And we are so grateful for that fact. And I do pray, Father, that if there's somebody here today that does not know Christ as their Savior and has never repented and turned from their sin to trust in Him, that they would do that this morning in order that they may be reconciled to You through the blood of His cross. We ask this in Jesus' name. And thank You in His name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.